Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Tuesday, September 20th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Chad's interim foreign minister resigns amid national dialogue. I think this resignation tells about the malaise that exists within the government and within the entire society about the transition. Somalia's military recaptures villages and kills over 100 Al-Shabaab fighters. A Liberian Nobel Peace Laureate calls on the country's opposition to unite ahead of 2023 election. Mozambique's president calls on Western energy companies to resume work in Cabo Delgado province. South Africa's energy crisis brings rolling blackouts. Waking up in the morning and there's no lights. Now you think, what is he going to eat before he goes to school? So it's, it's very stressful to be a mom. And Nigerian youths are lured by traffickers into harvesting their organs. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. A political analyst says the future of Chad does not lie in continued disputes, but rather in finding common ground and a way forward. Ibrahim Khan says if the military-led government is willing to genuinely engage about the future of their country, it should have organized the current dialogue in Chad, not Qatar. This comes as Chad's interim foreign minister, Sharif Mohammed Zeni, resigned Monday due to what he calls a disagreement with other members of the government. Political analyst Khan tells me that Foreign Minister Zeni's resignation speaks to the challenges that the military government is facing in organizing a transition to civilian rule. I think this resignation tells about the malaise that exists within the government and uh, within the entire society about the transition. Let me first look at the immediate reason that led to his resignation. He said that he was sidelined by the president. The president was taking a number of decisions against his own portfolio, and uh, the latest being the minister of uh, communication attending a function where the minister of foreign affairs, or at least his deputy, was supposed to take place. That's uh, the final reason that he made, presented his resignation. But I think overall, it's uh, the difficulty that the current government is facing in organizing a smooth or an organized transition to uh, a civilian government. There is so many obstacles, hurdles that one can ask himself uh, when are we going really to have an organized uh, transition in this country? There's a dialogue going on in Qatar, but one of the opposition leaders is not participating. And I, I just learned late last week that the Catholic Church has even pulled out of the dialogue process. I guess that speaks to what you are saying about the difficulties the military government is having. Yes, but the first question to ask is why Qatar is organizing a dialogue between Chadian. If the Chadian government is willing to really make sure that everybody speaks about the future of the country, it should not be organized in Qatar. It should be organized in the country, and also it should involve all the different actors. You know, I think many of your people don't know, since 1963, Chad is uh, under a kind of civil war. And there is a lot of military groups, a lot of rebel groups that are fighting the government 
not only in the northern part of the country, in the eastern part of the country, and in the southern part of the country. So did he at some point uh, realize the unity of the country? But then himself, at the end of, uh, just before he died, he was facing a kind of rebellion in his country. So, so I think there is a need in that country that people stop this kind of rebellion. People sit down and discuss about the future of the country. The future of this country is not a feature of dispute, is not a feature of fighting each other. It's a feature of finding common ground to really start dealing with the problem of the country. Thank you so much again. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Ibrahim Makan is a Senegalese political analyst. He was speaking with us from the Senegalese capital, Dakar. Liberian Nobel Peace Laureate Lehman Bowie has called on Liberian opposition politicians to set aside their differences and unite if they are to have a chance to defeat incumbent President George Weah in the 2023 election. Bowie won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011 alongside then-President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf for helping to end Liberia's long civil war. Her appeal comes as Liberian opposition parties are fighting among themselves with each leader wanting to be the candidate of their respective parties. Bowie said she has declined requests by several Liberians for her to serve as a running mate for an opposition candidate. She tells me that even though she declined the petitions, she wants all opposition leaders to put their personal egos aside and unite in the interest of the country. If I had any belief that my being on any individual ticket would change the current regime, I would agree to do that. But the politics in our nation is so polarized to the point that right now we do not need too many people on the ballot in order to have a regime change. I think there should be a united front in order to have a regime change. Would you be willing to undertake some kind of mediation to bring them together? Well, there is a lot of conversation happening behind the scenes about it come together. Some of the people who have come to sit with me to say, we want you as second to this person, my take has been, let's not go this route. I think it is important for Liberians to see these three main oppositions, especially former Vice President Boyka and coming. I can tell you without a doubt that a former Vice President Boyka and Mr. Cummings came together in a united force to run as president and vice president there will be a serious challenge. I can tell you, I don't even think we'll go to a second round. President Weah will have to do a lot to go to a second round. But a divided ticket of three individuals on the ballot box, Mr. Bonglo, former Vice President Boyka, Mr. Cummings, that is a recipe for a second term six years for the CDC-led government. Given what has transpired among these opposition parties, are you hopeful that such reconciliation can take place and for unity to come about? Mr. Bozier, I am optimistic that these people would love Liberia more than their ego. They would love Liberia more than their ideologies. They would love Liberia more than their educational credentials. They would love Liberia more than their professional credentials. They would love Liberia more than whatever has happened because 
by loving Liberia, it means putting aside everything that has happened and putting the interest of Liberia first. Anything short of that, none of them will win. Right now, with all of the hauling and pulling that is happening in Liberia, those in the ruling regime are very happy. We don't want them to come together. Let them just keep fighting until October 2023. And we are saying to them, can you just come together and do this, even if not for our generation, for the younger generation, so that they can see that there are still patriots in this country who put aside their own personal interest and put the interest of Liberia forward. With so many eagles available, are you sure you, that comments can give way or Boakai can give way to someone to be if, in fact, they are not the one to be the head? Well, I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful that this can happen. Those two gentlemen, or I'll add Mr. Gongle, three gentlemen, are people that I have a lot of respect for. When I sat with some of the folks from the Gonglo camp, one of the things that I said to them was that it's important for you all, not Mr. Gonglo, but those that surround these individuals to kindly get the evils out of the way and allow these people to engage. Lema Bowie, thank you so much. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Mr. Porter, and you have a blessed day. That was Liberian Nobel Peace Laureate Lema Bowie speaking with us from New York. Somali army commanders say their forces killed more than 100 al-Shabaab militants during weekend offenses to retake territories from the Islamist militant group. Witnesses say the troops also captured two villages that al-Shabaab had held for more than a decade. Mohamed Dyersonen reports from Mogadishu. The Somali National Army said Monday that troops launched a fresh offensive against al-Shabaab in the central Hiran region. Over the weekend, senior army commanders in Iran who spoke to VOA via phone said that fierce firefights between the military and al-Shabaab began early Saturday, especially in the villages of Abori and Yasaman. They told VOA that 75 al-Shabaab militants were killed in the fighting in Yasaman and Tati in the vicinity of Abori. Local residents told VOA via WhatsApp that troops took control of both villages, which had been under Al-Shabaab control for more than a decade. Speaking to media at the front line, Abdi Fattah Hassan Afra, the former governor of Iran, said troops are defeating the enemy of Somali people, referring to Al-Shabaab. He says... Our victories are bringing more victories, and it is coming one after the other, and their defeat will bring them more defeat. By the will of Allah, God, we are wishing that they will be cleared out of the country. Somalia's information ministry said Sunday that the army's recent offensives have killed 200 al-Shabaab fighters and liberated 30 villages from the group in all Malik Abdullah is a member of the Somali federal parliament from Iran. He told VOA via WhatsApp that the fighting in Iran also involved local militia, known as Ma'wisley. He said residents of the village have had enough of Al-Shabaab. And some of the Ukraine, Sha'ab Iran. He says the reason why the people of Iran or the people of this region fight is because they could not bear the hardship they faced day and night. 
He says they stood up to survive after Al-Shabaab blew up their water wells and their village burned Al-Shabaab as yet to comment on the army and the information ministry's claims. But in a video released by the group Media Wing Sunday night, spokesman Ali Mahmoud Rage, known as Ali Dere, said the group is ready for the war that Somalia's president Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud declared on them. Rage warned Mogadishu residents to stay away from hotels that are frequented by Somali government officials. President Mahmoud, who was elected in May, announced that his administration will wage a total war against the Al-Shabaab network after the group attacked a hotel in Mogadishu, killing more than 20 people and wounded at least 100 others. Mohamed Daisane for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Tuesday, September 20th. Generators are the sound of South Africa these days. The country's state power utility, ESCOM, has implemented its highest level of nationwide power cuts to reduce pressure on the grid after two more of its aging power plants broke down. South Africans will be forced to go up to nine hours a day without electricity, putting a severe strain on Africa's most industrialized economy. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. The energy crisis is so severe that President Cyril Ramaphosa is cutting short his trip to the United Nations General Assembly in New York to return home and try and find solutions to the electricity shortages. Ramaphosa, who is currently in England for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, had just held an urgent virtual meeting with the concerned ministers to find out what led to so many units tripping, his spokesman Vincent Maguena told VOA. Further, I wanted to understand what could be done immediately to resolve the current state of load shedding, which is devastating to businesses as well as households. On Sunday, officials from state power utility ESCOM warned that the country could be heading for even higher stages of what's known here as load shedding, scheduled blackouts to save energy. Stage six, the worst level seen so far, and which was last implemented in June during South Africa's winter, allows for some 6,000 megawatts to be cut to avoid total collapse of the national grid. ESCOM CEO Andre de Reuter said load shedding might have to be ramped up to stage eight, but that total blackout was not an imminent risk. I think we are doing our level best to avoid a total system collapse. Uh, That is why we have to impose load shedding. For ordinary South Africans, load shedding makes all aspects of daily life difficult, from having to plan when to cook to making sure they always have gas lamps or candles available for when homes across the country are plunged into darkness. And for small businesses that can't afford to get generators, the cuts are simply devastating. Jeanette Mamelwa is a hairdresser at a small Johannesburg salon, which was empty on Monday morning. She says there's no electricity to run the hairdryers, so no clients are coming in. Mamelwa works on commission, so isn't earning anything. Yeah, I am concerned because of this load shedding. My boss can one day just say no. I can't take this anymore. We're not making enough money, so I need to close. 
So, yeah, I am worried about that. Things are even worse at home, says Mamelwa, who has a young son. Waking up in the morning and there's no, there's no lights. Now you think, what is he going to eat before he goes to school? So it's, it's very stressful to be a mom. The current electricity crisis has been brewing for a decade. The cash-strapped and debt-ridden power utility relies on aging coal plants that are prone to breakdowns. Corruption has also weakened the utility considerably, said independent political analyst Ralph Mathekwa. And the problem with load shedding is that ours is self-created. It is about corruption, inability to turn things around and fight against corruption. If South Africa's energy crisis persists, there will be massive damage to the economy, which has already been badly hit by the pandemic, with the official unemployment rate currently at 33.9%. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. Mozambique's president, Felipe Nyusi, has called on Western energy companies to resume work in Cabo Delgado province, saying security has improved around the town of Palma. But clashes are continuing between federal forces and other African allies against Islamist militants, as Charles Maguiro reports from Maputo. Addressing Mozambique Gas and Energy Summit in Maputo Wednesday, Mozambican president, Felipe Nyusi, assured foreign investors the security situation in troubled northern Cabo province had improved. He said locals were returning to the town of Palma and other areas they had abandoned because of terrorist attacks. New CH Western Energy Companies to do the same. He says the success in combating the terrorists in the district of Mosimba da Praia and Palma improved stability since the attacks on the town of Palma. But insurgent attacks last week spread to Mozambique's northern Nampola province. Authorities say the militants attacked several villages, beheaded six Mozambicans, killed an Italian nun, abducted three people and torched scores of homes. The Islamist militants are linked to the Islamic State and call themselves Al-Shabaab, though they have no direct connection to the Somali militant group by the same name. In March 2021, France Total Energies halted exploration of a gas field and a $20 billion plant in northern Mozambique after Islamist militants' attacks. There was no immediate response from the energy companies to Nusi's call to return. Total Energies CEO said in April the company did not expect to resume work in Mozambique, which is Africa's third largest known gas reserves, until 2023. Cabo Delgado province has suffered increasingly violent attacks by the insurgents since 2017, many targeting towns and communities near the gas project. Critics blame the project for stalking the insurgency by not investing enough to develop the impoverished region. The conflict has left thousands of Mozambicans dead and more than 800,000 displaced. Troops from Rwanda and the Southern African Development Community have helped retake towns from the insurgents, but have not been able to contain or end the fighting. Charles Manguiro for VOA News, Maputo. Mozambique. Nigeria recently made unwanted international headlines as a former deputy Senate president stands trial in London for alleged trafficking and illegal harvesting of organs. Gift Akiriga reports from Abuja. I can give it out for free, but only to my mom, no other person. Then if I must sell it, it has to be a lifetime contract. You'll be paying me till I die. And it has to be $100 million every month. No, I will not sell any part of my body. I need all the parts in my body. Well, I can never sell any part of my body for anything because there's no amount of money that can replace what 
has been removed from your body. But money is not everything. It depends on how much is at stake, you know, how much you're willing to offer. You know, if it's not about saving life, then maybe it has to be about the money, and then the money should be worth it. Uh, if you're talking about probably hundreds of million, then uh, maybe I might play ball, you know, just to get a few things done, and then we're all going to die someday, you know. Voices of some Nigerian youths responding to the question if they would be willing to sell their body parts for money. Organ trafficking includes a range of criminal activities, including illegal harvesting from a living or dead individual and the unlawful sale and transportation of body parts. Desperate Nigerians, especially unemployed youths, are easily lured into selling their body parts for money. A recent report by the Washington-based think tank Global Financial Integrity estimates that the illegal organ trade generates profits between $600 million and $1.2 billion per year with a span over many countries. Dr. Osaho Enabolele is the president of the Commonwealth Medical Association in Nigeria. It's an unfortunate situation and development. And there's no doubt that in this day when poverty is ravaging several Africans, not just Nigeria, everybody looking for daily means of livelihood. And uh, irrespective of such offers, they be tempted to accept such uh, offers only to find out that they have been, of course, lured into very unexpected ends. Harveston has now become one of Nigeria's biggest problems. The most transplanted organ is the kidney. Recently, a Nigerian lawmaker and his wife were arrested and detained by the Metropolitan Police in London over alleged conspiracy regarding organ harvesting of one David Ukbo Mwamini. They were accused of conspiring to traffic a homeless man from Nigeria to go to the UK to harvest his kidney for their daughter. In Abulele, lamented the rise in unemployment in Africa and calls on the government to provide job opportunities for its citizens in order to mitigate the illegal activity. And that's it for this Tuesday, September 20th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barty in Washington, wishing you will have a terrific Tuesday. Join me, Heidi Adams, as we bring you Straight Talk Africa from New York to discuss this year's United Nations General Assembly. Leaders from all over the world convene to tackle the critical issues of our time. Where do African leaders stand? What are their priorities? have expert analysis for you on the next Straight Talk Africa, this Wednesday at 18.30 UTC. Every year, world leaders gather in New York for the annual United Nations General Assembly. Count on VOA to be there, delivering news you can trust on radio, TV and the web. A free press is essential. VOA Africa, your trusted source for news and information. 
Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music from bubu music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, afrobeat to ndombolo and makosa to kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 0905 and 2005 UTC right after the international news.